He dreamed of being the next big pop star. So Bernie Lazar Hoffman left his Joplin, Missouri home and family to make a name for himself. But the big stage was not to be his calling. Instead, he found other ways to use his gifts to influence people and to make a fortune. It's too bad it was at the expense of those who were innocent and in need of a friend, not a life of manipulation, abuse, and bondage. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Bernie Lazar Hoffman was born on September 30, 1934, and he knew pretty early on that he was meant for more than his small town of Joplin, Missouri could offer. He felt he was destined to be a pop rock star, so in his teenage years, he packed a bag and headed for Los Angeles. Believing that his name was quote-unquote too Jewish, he changed it to Marcus Aband. He says, quote, I am a Jew. My family were not particularly religious people. My father, an immigrant from Romania, kept some of the Jewish tradition when we were very young, but in the part of the states where I was raised, there were very few Jews. We were continuously warned not to say we were Jews, to tell them in school that we were Romanians. My mother and father said we would get beat up. End quote. Apparently, the music industry did not have the same intuition about Bernie's, uh, Marcus's talent. He'd cut a couple 45s and brag about how well they were doing and how everyone wanted him on their label. But that's not what really happened. He'd spend small fortunes creating the outward appearance of being a successful musician. He'd wear designer clothes and expensive jewelry. He'd hire limos and bodyguards to take him places. But it just wasn't working. He then figured out the problem. It wasn't lack of talent, obviously. It was his name. He changed it once again to Tony Alamo. He figured that if he presented a more Italian presence, that would do the trick. He'd say, quote, The Italians were all making it as crooners at that time. If the craze would have been for Oriental singers, my name would probably be Yak Sukiyaki. End quote. To be fair, one of his songs does make it into the charts. It's not awful. It's pretty generic. It sounds much like a lot of the other music that was pouring into the music scene in the 1950s. Nothing really made his version stand out. I did catch myself wiggling in my seat listening to The Robot Walk. I put it in the link show notes so you can wiggle too. I can picture the setup. He's surrounded by girls in go-go boots doing the newest dance craze, The Robot Walk. Caution, it is annoying enough to get stuck in your head. Changing his name, however, wasn't the magic he was hoping for. But along the way, Bernie, uh, I mean Marcus, dang it, I mean Tony, did find out one thing. He was very talented in the gift of gab. He could convince people of just about anything. 
except having a great singing voice, and you can't really fake that. But everything else, how does that saying go? He could convince Eskimos to buy ice cubes? Something along those lines. So he took his gift and shifted his focus. Instead of being in front of the spotlight, he decided to work behind it. He started telling anyone who would listen that he was a music manager. He knew how to target those people who were hungry for fame. He'd seek out artists who were new to the area, perhaps a little bit lost but starry-eyed, those who would believe what he told them. He said he had represented The Doors, The Rolling Stones, and even The Beatles, and these newcomers bought it, hook, line, and contract. He had the look, the limos, the security detail, and when you are on the path to fulfill your dream or you are scared and hungry, you are more likely to fall for what you see instead of what you know. You want to believe the words they are telling you, so you dive in heart first and leave your head behind, a skill Tony Alamo will use again and again in his future. To be fair, he did find them gigs, but took as much money from the deal as he could. He would pay his client, but only a fraction of what he charged the venue. It was all perfectly legal. Not cool, but nothing he could go to jail for. And he really didn't care. He'd say, quote, I did not believe in God, much less Jesus Christ. My philosophy of life was make all the money I could, do what I wanted to do, and when I wanted to do it, without any regard for anyone, end quote. If I had to give Mr. Alamo any kind of compliment, it would be that he did have a good business savvy. Instead of taking his income, however it was acquired, and blowing it on all the flashy things, which he still did, I mean, he's got a rep to protect, but he would invest every extra penny he had, most of the time, in real estate and businesses in and around Los Angeles. To hear him tell it, he was big business. He had his hands in everything, and it all turned to gold. Quote, I went from crooner into the health studio business. I was vice president in charge of promotion for a very large health studio chain. We had 75 studios in the States and Canada. I ducked in and out of the motion picture and music industry down through the years, cutting records myself to fit the trend of music, whatever it was. I put together oldie but goodie albums, bought out top radio and television time, and made a fortune out of them way back then. Now, there is no big money in them. I managed and promoted stars, top ones. I would pick up complete unknowns, manage and promote them to big stars, end quote. But on the back end of that, he would claim, quote, To me, life was vile. The more money I made, the more grief I had. Money never bought me not even one moment of peace. The more I had, the more miserable I was, end quote. And also, quote, I had absolutely no respect for women at all. Everyone I encountered was worse than the one before. I actually hated them and decided that for some reason I had been put here to punish them because they were so evil, end quote. Around this time, two things happened that would change the trajectory of his life forever. He met Edith Horn, and Jesus came to him in a vision and told him, no one else, just him, that he would be returning soon. Tony Alamo had a new mission. Quote, Suddenly my ears went completely deaf. I could not hear any noise from the crowd in the room. 
Some of their mouths were moving, but I could not hear anything they were saying. Suddenly, I heard a voice. A voice that came from every direction. It was all around me. It was going through every fiber of my being. The voice said, I am the Lord thy God. Stand up on your feet and tell the people in this room that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth, or thou shalt surely die. I looked around the room to see if someone was putting me on, some kind of trip, and they were all looking at me. I thought, I am going crazy. I am losing my mind. I stood to my feet and said, I am ill. The giant pressure that was upon me forced me back into my seat, and the voice said again, I am the Lord thy God. Stand up on your feet and tell the people in this room that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again, or thou shalt surely die. I struggled to my feet again. My heart was palpitating so hard it felt as if I was going to jump out of my body. And suddenly, a revelation came to me. So real, I started screaming to the top of my lungs. No, God, no, please don't kill me. I'll tell them, I'll tell them. I looked at the people in the room. They were all staring at me with eyes as big as owls. I know you won't believe me, I said, but God is telling me to tell you that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. Now, I said it to myself. I said it. I started gasping for breath. What's the matter, God? I said it. I told them. Suddenly, every promotion I had ever done in my life was laid out before me. The enthusiasm I had built and sold a star or product with. And the Lord said, Is that the best you can do for me? I said again, I know you won't believe me, but Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again. This time, when I looked at the group of people, they all looked so small to me. I really wound up with all enthusiasm. Repent! I screamed. Jesus is coming! I had never read a Bible scripture in my life. I commanded everyone in the room to get down on their knees and repent immediately that Jesus was coming. I thought that if I did not do a good job, they would all disintegrate before my eyes and I would disintegrate for not doing a good enough job. The vacuum around me began to lift and my hearing was returning and the Lord said, that's enough. End quote. This was at a Beverly Hills investment firm. Following this revelation, he went from church to church to try and find a deeper meaning to this message and was upset to find out that no one believed him. And more importantly, according to him, they were not teaching that Jesus was returning. Let me put this vein of the story on pause for just a moment so we can go back and pick up Edith Opal Horn, who was going to be the beacon of light in his dark, unfamiliar world of evangelism. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. 
It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Apparently, and stories are sketchy at best, Tony met Edith while she was attempting to become a preacher in California in 1964. According to him, she would barely give him the time of day until he came to her and shared how Jesus spoke to him specifically. She was born Edith Opal Horn, and she was nine years older than Tony, and probably saw in him, what he was, a con artist, but a good one, so she probably kept her distance for that reason. She had intentions of becoming an actress. When she was 16, she moved from her hometown in Alma, Arkansas, which is in Crawford County, with her daughter Chris, who she had when she was only 15. Proving she could make money with a different kind of acting, meaning she would go to churches and act like she was a missionary in needs of funds to support her and her daughter while doing the Lord's work, she longed for more. Once Tony revealed he had jumped on board the Christian money train, he suddenly looked like just the right man for her. Tony, on the other hand, was completely smitten. He decided he could use his promotional skills to put her on the map. Her attention grew as did a following. Tony did what he do. But then Tony was arrested and convicted with a weapons charge and served three months in jail. Then apparently after that came his revelation, and then a wedding in Las Vegas on August 19, 1966. They legally changed their names to Tony and Susan Alamo. While living in Vegas, Susan's daughter, Chris, moved in with them. During this time, she says Tony sexually assaulted her. However, when she told her mother, Susan refused to believe her and accused Chris of seducing Tony. They moved back to Los Angeles, set about creating their first business as a married couple, the Music Square Church. They started in the streets of Hollywood and found no lack of people down on their luck. They handed out tracts pointing out all the reasons why it's the Catholics that put them in this position they were in. But if they were to follow Jesus, especially at this dilapidated old restaurant, they would be spiritually transformed. Tony would say, At first, we had no church. We financed our own ministry. We took the kids home with us, fed them. Many of them were half dead, dying of drug addiction and malnutrition. We led them to Christ Jesus, saw them filled with the Spirit, and grounded them in the Word of God. The new followers would come and live in their three-bedroom house just a few blocks from the Sunset Strip. It didn't take long before the authorities were called on a regular basis for unsanitary conditions. There were over 200 people living in the one house. Tony and Susan, of course, had their own separate accommodations. They bust in vagrants, drug users, prostitutes, Vietnam vets, teen runaways, or anyone else looking for a hot meal, some music, and a message. Tony recalls, quote, We went to the streets, me very reluctantly, and here is where the Jesus movement began. You hear a lot today of where the Jesus movement started. I can tell you all about it. Many people have tried to take credit for the great revival that has swept the world, but believe me, there was no one else in the streets when Susan and I first went out there. The kids were singing songs that God was dead, 
burn down the churches, kill the pigs, kill the establishment, end quote. So here they were, a happy little commune living on love. Well, they were. Mr. and Mrs., not so much. The people who came with them agreed to give up their worldly possessions. Any money they had or might have was freely handed over to serve the need of the many. Any welfare checks, financial aid, gifts their family sent, jewelry, anything. The Alamos would hire them out to local farms and the wages they earned went straight to the till. Iris Broderick, a former resident, recalls, quote, You can't get anything on your own. You can't even work outside jobs. You have to work for the church. And anything you did make goes straight to the church. You don't keep anything, end quote. The Alamos controlled everything, from underwear to a hospital visit, for a haircut or a dental appointment. Associates had to submit a written request. Women had to submit their Ask Susie's to her. Books and magazines had to be approved. There were no pets, no radio, no telephones, no newspapers, no family outside the followers. They told them their family was lost to Satan since they didn't choose the Alamo way of life. They had to take a vow of poverty and give everything to the church. With the money coming in and people content to live off the scraps knowing they had a roof over their head, Tony did what he do. He invested in businesses. Soon, the Music Square Church was expanding. By 1970, they created a full-on cult compound, complete with a wall completely surrounding the property and armed guards and security cameras. They purchased and converted a former restaurant on Sierra Highway in Saugus Canyon. The followers, thankful for a purpose, a job to do, worked on the buildings of the compound and in the businesses Tony acquired. And since their income, she says in air quotes, was going back to the church anyway, those businesses pulled in a tidy profit. Even though on some days the food was so slim they had to scavenge in dumpsters to feed themselves and were told not to flush too often, and the heater could only be run twice a day for ten minutes, and the homes had mold, the people were content. They were grateful. They bought into everything. When you have nothing, something looks like everything. Greg Tarwater, guitarist of the Sons of Adam band, would recall, quote, Around the spring of 1967, the band recorded their third and final single for Alamo Records, a small label run by a strange character by the name of Tony Alamo. He and his new wife, Susan, founded a street ministry passing out religious tracts on Hollywood Boulevard, targeting primarily drug addicts, prostitutes, teen runaways, and street hippies. In 1967, Alamo was still an unknown hustler, working several angles on the fringes of the music industry, in addition to his street ministry. None of the band members remember the exact circumstances of how they became involved with the fast-talking hustler, but the deal was for a one-off single with Alamo as the producer. Tony Alamo seemed to me to be someone with a different agenda than ours. He insisted we change some lyrics on one of the tunes. I don't remember if we did or not. End quote. Tony would keep his people very busy, constantly working or praying and indoctrinating them into the rules of their mission, using Jesus as not only their savior, but also their punisher. It was not a loving God they preached about. It was hellfire and brimstone. 
It was apocalyptic Christianity. It was a god of rules, a god of retribution, a god of punishment. Quote, Since we started the work, we have seen many other youth groups spring up. Some are good, some are bad. Some of them are nothing more than communistic countergroups designed to destroy the faith of the youth in God, teaching young people that they can smoke pot, drop acid, commit adultery, do their own thing. They all operate under the banner of God is love. Beware of the God is love movement. What they are really saying is that God is permissive. Grace to these groups means sin. We teach our young people that God is a holy God, and when they speak of him, to do so with all reverence, end quote. Tony would dig deep into the Pentecostal theology and add a touch of fear. His claim to fame would be that he could turn, quote, lost souls away from the influences of Charles Manson and psychedelic Satanism, end quote. The Alamos preached a repent or perish gospel. And before you could turn away, he would whisper this warning to you. Only his church would lead you to heaven. The others are, wait for it, cults. He'd say, quote, check carefully into the Jesus movements before you become involved. Opportunists have gotten in, like they get into every move of God, to pervert the gospel and make merchandise of it. As Susie says, you don't buy a gospel work, you build it up on that solid rock, Christ Jesus. End quote. Yes, beware. And it was the devil himself warning you. In 1969, they formed the Alamo Christian Foundation. The Jesus gig was working pretty well for them. In an article from People Weekly of June 1983, quote, an Alamo defector who served as the foundation's purchasing agent calls the organization's bank accounts bottomless and tells how he used to order furs for Susan Alamo, leather suits for Tony, diamonds, Cadillacs, custom boots, and shirts by the dozen. He would air freight health foods from L.A. to Tony and Susan in Arkansas, while cult members sometimes ate supermarket-rejected spoiled food, end quote. The followers were kept lean, tired, and hungry, but loyal. Every weekend, busloads of new followers came in for the lure of a hot meal and a safe place to sleep, only to discover later that they weren't allowed to leave. If the people disobeyed him, they were told they were essentially disobeying God. The members had to believe everything he believed in order to get to heaven, and that his words were essentially the words of God. The Pope was the Antichrist, the government was after Tony to squash his gospel, and Tony's church was the only true church in the world. Everyone else was going to hell, except his members, who believed and didn't have impure thoughts, or questioned him. Only those could be saved. In 1973, the Tony and Susan Alamo show was broadcast out to television audiences every Sunday morning. It was carefully crafted in an expensive studio with gospel music, a huge choir, and then testimonials of how Tony and Susan had saved them from sex work, life on the streets, drug addiction, and a potential life of crime. The television show did so well, by 1975 they expanded again. They purchased land in Dyer, Arkansas, near where Susan had grown up, 
and they rinsed and repeated the process of growth once again. The compound in Arkansas became the main branch of their entire empire, and that's what they were building, an empire. They named it the Holy Alamo Christian Church Consecrated. Tony swooped up the businesses all around them. They owned restaurants, construction companies, a school, a nursery, gas stations, a trucking company, a few record labels, a candy company, a landscaping business, auto repair shop, a hog farm, and what he was probably known most for, the Alamo Western Wear Apparel Shop. In his apparel shop, he offered the fanciest goods. He sold a lot of quote-unquote performance wear to the entertainment industry. But the one thing that went mainstream were his bedazzled denim jackets. Quote, First, the raw denim was washed in a drum filled with pumice stones and bleach. Then it was cut and sewn into shape. From there, a basic stencil, a skyline or the outline of a cartoon character, was applied using a silk screen, and then the delicate work of airbrushing and embellishing could begin. Children manned the rhinestone station. Using their small fingers, they dropped row after row of Swarovski stones into the tiny fittings, end quote. These he would charge anywhere from 200 to $1,000 each. And in the early 80s, that wasn't chump change. His name was everywhere. These gaudy jackets were seen on celebrities such as Brooke Shields, Dolly Parton, Mr. T, Miley Cyrus, and Michael Jackson. They expanded again to Tennessee and again to Oklahoma, but Arkansas still remained their hub. Tony and Susan had a massive mansion built just outside of Alma, Arkansas, and were always driving around in new Cadillac cars wearing nice clothes and sparkly jewelry. They built a quote-unquote multi-purpose building onto their house so they could deduct it on their taxes, and this was where they invited the biggest names in the music industry to come and perform. Dolly Parton, Buck Owens, Tammy Wynette, and Hank Williams Jr. would all perform there. Even former President Bill Clinton recalls meeting Tony Alamo when he came to see Dolly Parton perform. He would write in his book, In My Life, quote, At the time, the Alamos sold fancy performance outfits in Nashville to many of the biggest country music stars. That's not all they did. Tony, who looked like Roy Orbison on Speed, had been a promoter of rock and roll concerts back in California. When he met Susan, who had grown up near Alma, but had moved out west and became a television evangelist, they teamed up and he promoted her as he had his rock and rollers. Susan had white blonde hair and often wore floor-length white dresses to preach on TV. She was pretty good at it, and he was great at marketing her. They built a small empire, including a large farming operation manned by devoted young followers, end quote. Tony and Susan Alamo were everywhere and making money hand over fist. And finally, people started getting suspicious. According to historical Italian documents, patronage was not an option. It was the key to one's social status. Quote, a career and social mobility were impossible apart from being involved in a network of patronage relationships. Notability and credibility went hand in hand, end quote. We may never have heard of Galileo, Michelangelo, or Shakespeare's contributions to science and art, 
if it were not for patrons to allow them not only to create and discover, but to bring them and their work to the attention of others. Those who patroned for creatives not only monetary support, they also helped to introduce them to a wider audience, increasing the respectability for both the patron and the creative. It's true today we trust those who recommend something more than we may find on our own. Now, I would hate for your notability and credibility to go static. I would highly recommend going over to patreon.com to jump into the Bag of Bones podcast Patreon group. Inside, you can choose from five levels of participation, all increasing with a lovely array of gifts to show my appreciation. And in true historic Patreon practices, I'd be most humbled if you would introduce the podcast to your network of relationships. So quickly, before you forget, put this episode on pause and head on over to patreon.com to raise your social status for as little as $2 a month. Allow me to thank you in advance for joining us over at patreon.com, and I look forward to sending off your welcome kit. Thanks for continuing a beautiful, historical tradition honoring both patrons and creatives by allowing our work to continue into the future. Tony Alamo says, I never, ever used religion for money. I have always donated into the gospel. We made a pact that everything we made goes into the church. Everything. I don't own anything. I don't even own a bank account. That's proof positive. End quote. However, some of the former followers had finally gotten someone to listen. Suddenly, complaints were coming in about the poor treatment of the people who worked inside the compound and in the Alamo businesses. They would complain about having to work 12 to 14 hours per day. They didn't get to keep any of the money. They had to be told how to cut their hair and what clothes they were allowed to wear, who they could marry, who, so on and so forth. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is this? Trouble in paradise? But then, they found out that these rules also applied to children. Children as young as eight years old were forced to work these long hours. In just the denim jacket factory, 150 people had to work 14 hours a day, and since children had such small fingers, they had to attach the limestones until their fingers bled. In 1976, the Department of Labor sued the church for $19 million in unpaid wages. Tony fought back with every lawyer he could get his hands on. His main defense was that his businesses were, quote, churches in disguise. Therefore, they should be exempt from federal income tax. By the 1980s, the Tony Alamo fashions were big business. Tony kept the money coming in, but it was only just a matter of time. Being blasted with legal troubles and runaway followers, Tony's wife had been diagnosed with cancer. Side note, this was one of her go-tos back in the day. She would falsely claim to have cancer to raise money and then tell everyone she was miraculously healed. She was actually truly diagnosed in the late 70s and chose not to seek treatment, believing that she would be healed. They would tell their viewers they had no doubts that she would be saved and made whole once again. But, just to be on the safe side, Tony took her to the Oral Roberts City of Faith Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
From 1977 to 1980, Tony fought the allegations of violating the Fair Labor Standards Act. After many, many court battles, Tony Alamo lost. His tax-exempt status was revoked, and he was required to pay back wages in the millions. When it rains, it pours. And then, the unthinkable happens. Susan dies. She is only 56 years old. People Weekly would say, quote, Susan was the Foundation's spark, the divinely chosen handmaiden of God, who would make a miracle curing herself, thus focusing attention on the Foundation. Then she and Tony would lead a glorious world crusade, end quote. Tony cannot accept this. He takes her embalmed body back to their home in Arkansas and has an open casket in the center of a large room and demands the people fast for seven days and keep up their prayer vigil until she comes back, believing it would only take three days. He had shifts of prayer warriors going every moment of every day. After three days, she was still dead. Tony was furious and yelled and screamed at the people for not praying enough or for having impure thoughts. He added more people and insisted her body was never alone. He blamed them for her continued sleep. He would say, quote, We could rule the world if you people weren't letting us down. End quote. He gave her plenty of chances to come back from the dead. Six months. Soon, the smell became intolerable. I guess he finally figured if it's not going to happen in six months, then it might not happen at all. Grief-stricken and resigned, he finally moved her body to a heart-shaped mausoleum that he had his followers build for her near the pool. After her death and his final acceptance of it, Tony began to spiral out of control. Bill Clinton would write in his memoir, quote, He tried to keep their empire going with the promise of Susan's return, but a promoter is lost without his product. Things went downhill, end quote. Benjamin Risha was somewhat of an adopted son of Tony and Susan. When his mother left the compound, they told him that she was dead. He said for a while he was treated like royalty. Quote, I had special privileges that other people never had, access to a lifestyle that was really fortunate compared to my peers and friends. End quote. But after Susan died, it was a different story. In his own mind, when Susan didn't come back from the dead, he began to see things for what they were. He'd say, quote, I believe Tony was always a criminal, a person with very bad intentions, but now I believe he had no one to check him, to in any way hold him back. I ended up living with another family after that. I started working 10 to 12 hour days. I worked all day, sometimes at night, end quote. He would also recall, quote, we were required to fast if we ever got in trouble or we'd be put on some sort of special project, something that would require a lot more work, a lot less sleep, and a lot of beratement from the pulpit. We would be more or less embarrassed, end quote. The grieving widower had several relationships to try and seek solace for his broken heart. In 1984, he married again, but it only lasted a couple years. Her name was Brigitta Gillenhammer. She would open up a lot of connections for Tony in the New York fashion industry. This helped launch his sparkly jackets to an all-time high. 
She said in an interview, quote, I took care of his business. I doubled the business at the Alamo of Nashville store. I tried to make the marriage work, end quote. Even though they were married for a short time, she was trying to divorce him and claim alimony so she could take care of bills he refused to pay. She says, quote, He left me with all the bills. He's not paying the bills at his store. He has still not paid me for the clothes he bought from my store for his store in December of 1984. Factories are calling me and asking why he doesn't pay his bills. It's no wonder you get rich when you don't pay your own bills. End quote. She tried to keep the whole ordeal low-key, but when Tony claimed to have married again, she had to speak up, admitting that she was still married to him. He refused to sign the divorce papers. She said Alamo sent her a telegram saying it was done, but there was no divorce decree, and when the new wife tried to leave the country, her marriage license was reportedly invalid. She said he flipped completely after they were married. She said, quote, I fell in love with Tony. He can be very charming, end quote. She would say that while they were married, he tried to control her through abusive language, berating her or talking down to her. And soon, she claims, that he wanted to transform her face with plastic surgery so she would look like Susan. Yeah, she didn't hang around long after that. She'd say, quote, It's embarrassing to have a husband who gives stupid interviews and gives out crazy literature saying the country is run by the Vatican, end quote. So, he was for sure married two times, legally, but the number of quote-unquote spiritual wives he claimed would number into the high 20s. However, an article in the Arkansas Gazette from 1986 reported that Gillenhammer was actually Alamo's sixth wife. The followers believed that they only needed permission from Tony Alamo and God. Having to obtain a license and register through the government was just Satan at work and the Catholics trying to keep account of everyone. He describes these as, quote, tools of the Vatican, end quote. One former follower, Judy, said that Susan arranged her marriage. She explained, quote, single men and women were not allowed to speak to each other in the foundation. I met Danny on our wedding night, really. I hardly knew him. Our first kiss was our wedding kiss, end quote. Despite the many allegations that Tony was the only person who would decide who could marry who, he vehemently denies it. He says, quote, We don't arrange marriages of all the wildest lies told about us. That's got to be in the top 20, end quote. Also happening in 1982, Tony had another vision of how he was going to grow his church family, babies. This article from People Weekly reads in part, quote, Alamoites round the country began actively recruiting unwed mothers, mostly young and poor, to come to Arkansas as part of Tony's anti-abortion campaign. This was and is their offer. We will pay for the delivery of the child and will raise the child until he or she is an adult, educate the child, and pay all expenses until fully grown. The psychic costs are not mentioned. The child would be raised by the foundation, perhaps to be adopted by a foundation couple, or the mother could become a volunteer and work, for nothing, of course, or she could leave. If she did, she might be able to reclaim her child in one to five years, as Tony adds, 
if she finds a good husband and a happy family life. Tony's baby project soon attracted unwanted attention. In one very tense confrontation, his gate guards turned away Arkansas Social Services officials who were seeking to examine the foundation's child care facilities. After the standoff, the officials returned with a court order and marched into the Dyer compound with state police. They found a child care center with no children in it, and a very uncooperative Tony. Tony has guards everywhere. They will not reply to anyone unless Tony nods. No one talks except Tony. Tony had said there were at least 70 children. There were none. We found 17 little beds and four cribs and two potty chairs and one commode. The only heat was from a wood-burning 55-gallon drum. We believe the women were to have their babies in Memphis. The mother gives the child to Tony. At first, we thought it might be a black market adoption racket. Now we think he's raising workers. The notion of a cadre of cultists indoctrinated from infancy is a chilling one. The baby harvest is just beginning to set off alarms in state agencies around the country, though so far little has been done. It's impossible to determine how many unwed mothers have accepted Tony's offer. It takes a court order to penetrate an Alamo compound, and people have a way of disappearing before an order is executed. Furthermore, the foundation recruits young runaways, who are less likely to be traceable. End quote. And then, following up on reports of child abuse, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, quote, March 25, 1988, sheriff's deputies raided the Saugus, California compound in order to reunite three boys with their natural fathers. The fathers had been members of the Arkansas compound, but had been excommunicated. Their wives had remarried more loyal subjects of Alamo, end quote. The boys were found to have been beaten and nearly starved to death. Robert Miller, one of the fathers, had previously run the Alamo Trucking Company and claimed that Alamo embezzled $100,000 from it, sued for the abuse of his son. In 1990, Tony, who was hiding out from other legal actions, failed to show up in court and so lost by default. He was ordered to pay $1.8 million to the Miller family. When asked about the allegations of child abuse within the compounds, Alamo denied all accusations. But Tony also says, quote, I think the people who are out smuggling drugs, they should have had spankings when they were a kid. Then maybe they wouldn't be out doing that. End quote. Mary Lou Weinzettel had her children taken from her, and she had to sign over custody in order for her to escape the compound. She immediately went to authorities to ask for their help. Her daughter was returned shortly after she got help, but the father of the son took him and hid out. Residents in a neighborhood later found the child in an abandoned car with two men from the compound. According to her, there was child abuse happening all the time. At the news conference, Mary Lou, who now lives in Illinois, said she left the Alma-based church because leader Alamo ordered severe spankings of children. She said she once watched three cult members use a paddle known as the Board of Education to strike a cult member's son 60 times for talking about racism. Alamo, she said, claimed the child, quote-unquote, had the devil in him and it had to be beaten out. Alamo fought back by saying, quote, she has the devil possessing her, end quote. And then he said, 
out loud, quote, People at our church use their hands or straps or sticks to spank their children. We don't just use boards, end quote. That's enough to make your skin crawl. Dr. Grande of YouTube fame would say, quote, There was nothing complex about Tony's manipulation, no charm or charisma. It was all just fear, end quote. Tony required 100% loyalty from each and every member, no matter how old they were. And to keep it that way, he had the church members spy on one another and report infractions directly to him. He would tell them, Jesus was always watching you, and he would tell Tony of their thoughts. Dr. Grande quips, quote, Yet, Tony still had to have his little spies throughout his compound, end quote. Tony was obsessive about impure thoughts. There is that rule that says if you are having them, you assume everyone else is having them too. He would instruct his members to say out loud, quote, The blood of Jesus is against you, Satan, end quote, if they were having impure thoughts. But here's the catch. When you say it out loud and someone else hears you, they are required to report you for having impure thoughts. So that means the person who had the impure thoughts, who was doing exactly what Tony told them to do, you know, following instructions, would still get beaten for the impure thought. Tony was considered to be very violent. There was a zero-tolerance policy for breaking any of the rules, no matter how old you were or what the circumstances might have been. He demanded to have control of every aspect of the lives of his members. When a rule was broken, the beatings would begin. Specific members were chosen to beat the guilty person until Satan had left their presence. Children were frequently abused this way. His excuse would be that the pain they felt in learning the lesson was better than the pain they would experience in hell for all eternity. It was said that sometimes Tony would relax on a couch drinking a Coke and watching the punishment. Oh, hang on. We're not done yet. In February 1991, federal agents raided the church compound. Tony wasn't paying his taxes, and the tally got up to just under $8 million before the IRS decided to come after their money. So wait. Before the raid happens, Tony instructs the members to clear out all of the people, as much of the paperwork as they can, and... They took Susan's body. Susan's estranged daughter, Chris, filed a lawsuit to have the body returned. Only after a three-year legal battle did Tony's followers bring the body back to a funeral home in Van Buren, Arkansas. The next month, Susan Alamo was reinterred in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In 1992, he was fighting for the right to keep their other tax-exempt status. But the judge ruled that the organization, quote, clearly operated for Tony and Susan's private benefit, end quote. So the IRS seized some of the church property to settle the judgment. And then, on June 8, 1994, he was convicted on one charge of filing a false income tax return and three charges of failing to file a tax return. Testimony during the trial revealed that the church had a total income of $9 million during the three years when the Alamos paid no taxes. 
In addition, the judgment against Alamo showed him owing another $5 million to former church members for unpaid work. Alamo filed bankruptcy and his related businesses collapsed. In September of 1994, Alamo was sentenced by the Federal District Court of the Western District of Tennessee to six years in the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana. In July of 1998, he was transferred to a Texarkana halfway house, and then he was released on December 8th of the same year. Not learning his lesson, I mean, how could he? He was released two years early. In fact, he was even preaching from prison the whole time. He'd send out taped messages that were to be played for his congregation. He'd talk about how the Bible encouraged polygamy and that, quote, women were old enough to get married as soon as they started menstruating, as young as 12, end quote. By the time he got out, he had his followers agree to bring him young girls for him to marry. The members would form circles around Tony and this young girl, blocking the surveillance cameras so he could molest his new wife without it being recorded. By the time he was released in 1988, he already had eight wives, two of which were underage. He would continue bashing the government because they wouldn't leave him alone, claiming that they were controlled by Satan. He'd say of the people who were trying to shut him down, quote, These people just want to squash the gospel. That's what they want. And so what they don't know about us is that we come up from the streets, and though they do take all this stuff away, we're not going to quit. We're going to go out and preach the gospel, even if we have to live in cardboard boxes. End quote. I'm sure what he meant to say is, if they had to live in a cardboard box. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! Pebbles Rodriguez was sent to visit Tony in prison, and there she was informed that she would be one of his brides. Her family, made up of her mother and two siblings, joined the ministry in Arkansas in 1995, seeking a fresh start. She remembers her mother being told that everything would be provided for them. She'd say, quote, You just work toward getting yourself into the kingdom of heaven. Your children will grow up being good Christian girls surrounded by Christian people. This was, in essence, heaven on earth where I was going to go, end quote. When Alamo was released from prison, he went looking for 13-year-old pebbles. Quote, I was confused. 
Marriage was something that was supposed to be honorable, but I married this monster. The most beautiful thing that's supposed to happen in your life was my worst nightmare, end quote. She would later confess, quote, I blanked out while the rape took place. He didn't care. He treated me like trash. He was mean, cruel. He beat us. It was not a pleasant experience at all, end quote. She would say that her mother knew nothing of the marriage or the repeated rape. The boys were separated from the girls, and she was told that Pebbles was with her Christian sisters getting a well-rounded education. Pebbles would say that she was never alone and was never allowed to speak with her mother alone. There was always someone monitoring what she did or said. So her mother didn't find out until the compound was raided, which was September twentieth, two 2008. State and federal officials raided Alamo's Fook, Arkansas compound as a culmination of a two-year investigation into the allegations of quote-unquote child abuse and pornography. Tony Alamo wasn't there. One of his wives actually escaped and was willing to tell everything she knew, and then they just had to wait for others to escape and convince them to testify. Elaine Aradias a staff writer for People would say in an interview, quote, They needed to get women to testify against Tony. As girls would flee the compound, they were able to track them down and find out that, yes, they'd be willing to testify against him. They got five women. They were actually girls. They were still underage, and they testified against him, and he was ultimately convicted of ten counts of taking girls across state lines to have sex with them, end quote. So basically, what this looked like, was he was making his tape-recorded sermons become a reality. Tony Alamo started taking child brides, and after, quote-unquote, joining with them in spiritual matrimony, he proceeded to rape them, and his followers supported him. Five days after the raid, they tracked Alamo down in Flagstaff, Arizona, where he was arrested for violating the Mann Act which is a federal statute to stop the trafficking of women or girls across the state lines for the purpose of having sex. From March of 1994 to October of 2005, a number of young women would come forward to testify they were sexually abused by Alamo, some forced to become his wife, the youngest, eight years old. He was found guilty on July 24, 2009, on 10 counts of violating the Mann Act. He was sentenced to 175 years in prison and was fined $250,000. In February of 2014, in the largest personal injury judgment in Arkansas history, the judge awarded $525 million in actual and punitive damages to seven former members of the Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. W. David Carter, a Texarkana-based attorney who fought for the sexual victims, said he represented seven girls who were referred to as his child brides, who were all under age when he was arrested. He went after at least 30 of his properties in order to get the settlements for his clients. Soon, they began to disperse from the Arkansas area. He'd say, quote, Once we took all their stuff, they cleared out of Arkansas. It's amazing how once you take the roof from over their head, it takes the fight out of their spirit for Alamo, end quote. Dr. Grande would say about cult leaders, quote, 
Some cult leaders realize that they are con artists, but others do not. I think that Tony came to believe that he was really hearing messages from God. His narcissism expanded to a delusional level. It's difficult to know which is more dangerous, the cult leader who knows he's lying or the cult leader who is delusional, end quote. Tony would die in prison at the age of 82. From what I understand, there are still a few members of the cult still active in California. It is evidenced by the familiar Tony Alamo tracks tucked under windshields in parking lots. Some refused to see the cruelty that came from Tony and Susan Alamo. Sil Primos was an ex-Black Panther who heeded the word in 1970 and followed Tony until the very last. He says, quote, I'd be dead. I would. I wouldn't be living today if it wasn't for Pastor Alamo and the Alamo Christian Ministry, if they hadn't found me on the street that day, end quote. Bill Levy would say, quote, I was a junkie of hard drugs for about five and a half years. The police had a shot at me. The schools had a shot at me to try and cure me. I didn't even want to stop taking drugs. There was nothing out there that I even considered was a reality until I met the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it took me about one second on my knees. You'd have to be blind not to see how God has manifested here. End quote. Rebecca, Bill Levy's daughter, says, quote, My dad would say that when he got up off his knees that the desire for heroin completely left him. He never went through withdrawals, he never desired it again, and he never, ever, ever used again, ever. End quote. Rebecca was a child of the compound, but was able to make a life for herself seeing both sides of the manipulation. She'd recall, quote, The interesting thing about this place is that the young people, the young hippies that came in, they were having supernatural experiences with God, real live ones. They were marked by their experiences after giving their lives to Jesus. Something really was happening to them. She goes on to say, quote, in spite of whatever Tony and Susie wanted and how they were going to manipulate it, these kids, they were meeting God. And so it was hard to convince them that what was going on was a cult. End quote. And one last story. Benjamin Risha, the one who was adopted by Tony and Susan, well, he was able to escape. When he was 17, he was working in one of the offices. He wasn't allowed to talk with anyone, so he got bored and started poking around the files. There, he found a picture of his mother, along with his birth certificate. He'd say, quote, I started calling information around the United States until I found a relative that said she was alive. My entire life, I believed she was dead and in hell because every person that left that place, more or less, had died and was in hell, end quote. He decided, after Susan didn't rise from the dead, he was ready to make a run for it. It's a very vivid memory for him. He says, quote, I ran away from the place with people chasing me. I got to the airport and they couldn't come on the tarmac. The man was chasing me had a cell phone with Tony Alamo on the phone saying, You can marry any woman you want and go live wherever you want. Just come back. And all I had to tell them was, Tony's a liar. I found my mom is alive and I'm going to live with her. I reunited with my mom and she's a great advisor and confidant. End quote. And that 
wraps it up for this week's episode of Bag of Bones podcast. I'm so happy you joined me. If you like what we're doing here each week and feel moved to support the podcast, I'd love it if you would join us over on our page at Patreon. We are still pretty new over in that platform, and I'm really enjoying getting to know our new patrons. It's only a few dollars to join, and I have been told I give too much back. So, if you like being spoiled, come on over and join us before they can talk some sense into me. I would love to have you in our group, and would love to get to know you better. Plus, we have the coolest merch I've seen from any podcast. Just saying. So, join us at patreon.com and search for Bag of Bones Podcast and jump in at whatever level you're comfortable. And I will meet you on the inside. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.